Hey there, First Opinion fans. It's Tori Bosch. The First Opinion podcast will be back in October. In the meantime, I wanted to bring you an episode from a great new Boston Globe podcast called Say More. Say More is a show about big ideas, like universal basic income and cryptocurrency, and the big debates around them. In each episode, Globe business columnist Shirley Leung holds intimate conversations with the compelling personalities shaping our present and future. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Say More from Boston Globe Opinion. I'm Shirley Leung. What if your doctor was a computer program? With recent quantum leaps in artificial intelligence, that's a possibility we could see in our lifetimes. AI has already been used in healthcare for years, but it's been limited to a few specialized tasks, like determining whether someone's heartbeat is irregular or not. Now, AI's use in medicine is expanding rapidly with the release of much more sophisticated technologies, like the original ChatGPT last fall and this year's GPT-4. Doctors are now using AI to help them diagnose patients and to fill out paperwork, which, as you'll hear, is way more important than you might think. Some doctors are even using ChatGPT on how to talk to concerned family members about a difficult diagnosis. All this change is happening in a field that is usually pretty conservative, slow to adopt new techniques without years of careful testing and evaluation. And it's all happening with almost no regulation or oversight. So what does that mean for the future of medicine? My two guests today have answers. Zach Kohani and Carrie Goldberg have just published a book together called The AI Revolution in Medicine, GPT-4 and Beyond. Zach is a computer scientist and a practicing endocrinologist, and he's the chair of the Department of Biomedical Informatics at Harvard Medical School. Carrie is a longtime health and science journalist who's reported for the New York Times, Boston Globe, WBUR Boston, and Bloomberg. Carrie and Zach co-authored the book with Peter Lee, who oversees research at Microsoft, which helped fund the development of ChatGBT. Carrie and Zach painted a picture of a radical future for medicine in which the relationship between the doctor and patient gains a new partner. It almost felt like to me they were already living in that future where AI touches everything from the mental health crisis to the discovery of new drugs. Here's our conversation. Carrie, Zach, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us, Shirley. Glad to be here. In lay terms, what is your book really about? I, w- I would say the first thing it's about is how we all sat in our own way stunned when we first learned that this thing existed. It just didn't seem possible. I would just add that it has been quite stunning to me to speak with a lot of very long time AI experts in the course of writing this book and find that all of them were so shocked by how amazingly capable GPT-4 was that they were having physiological symptoms, like they were having trouble sleeping, they were having rapid heart rate, they were finding themselves shouting at their friends and neighbors to try to get them to understand how monumental a change this was. You both call this stunning. I mean, what makes it stunning? What do you mean that it's capable? Capable of what? (laughs) All right, so contrast that with talk to Siri 
or talk to Alexa and try to have a conversation with them. Impossible. Now, I would have a conversation with this program, give it exactly the prompt I was given when I was called from the nursery to diagnose a child who had a small hole in the base of the phallus, and they wanted me to tell them what to do next. And so I asked a question of GPT-4, a program that has not been fine-tuned for medicine. It knows as much about medicine as it knows about anything else, which actually might be nothing. What it really knows, we know for sure, is what is the next word to say? What is the most next likely word to say? It knows a million words that you could say next, but which one is the most likely, the second most likely, and so on. And yet, this thing was having a fluid discussion with me about what imaging study to do next, what hormonal study to do next, what genetic disorder might be present, and even what to tell the parents. So this program that knows nothing about medicine was having this fluid conversation, not the stuttering pigeon talk conversation at best that you can have with Siri, but a fluid human conversation about expert performance that literally only dozens of doctors could do well. And Shirley, and then it nailed a diagnosis that basically affects one in a hundred thousand babies. And so, so I've known Zach for 20 years and he's always been the person who would puncture scientific hype for me, like human genome project. Ah, that'll be 10 or 15 years of nothing but bad news, you know. But in this case, he had that experience of testing out GPT-4 and he called me at like seven o'clock in the morning, just beside himself from, I think it was Penn Station and said, you know, you have to work on this book because I cannot believe what I have just experienced. That leads to what became then the framing motivation for the book which is we thought it was incredibly important for society to have a conversation about what's going on. I still run into many, many colleagues, including doctors, who maybe have heard about it, but never tried it. And so we thought it was a particularly propitious time and topic for that discussion. In the book, Zach, you talked about how GPT-4 is, is the most technological advance in your career that you've seen. When it's all is said and done, I mean, how will this generation of AI compare to other revolutions in medicine? Is it going to be bigger than antibiotics or vaccines or anesthesia? I do think that if used correctly and if the public does embrace it in the right way, it'll be such a leveler across class that I think it could have a impact just as large, at least as those other blips. What do I mean by that? If it is the case that the advice you get, whether it is to actually proceed with that surgery, whether to take that drug, whether to get that screening test, the advice you get is as good as the person who is really highly connected with their hospital board and sits on their board. If your advice you get, even if you are in a rural setting, far away from a tertiary care center, that's going to lift all the boats 
across the United States and across the world in terms of improving the quality of care. I like to say, although it's a very bad old joke, I like to ask, what do you call the person who graduated at the bottom of their medical school class? And the answer is doctor. <laughs> and what it means is if I could merely wave a wand and ensure that the bottom half of doctors performed as well as the top half or the top 10% without even developing new medicines, which GPT could also be very useful for. But if all you had was that, that would be truly transformative. I find it very disconcerting to hear Zach talk about the quality of doctors, but I, I take his word for it. I would make two other points. One is that half of humanity lacks access to decent health care. And one of the sort of more compelling visions that I've heard from people who work on GPT-4 is that you can imagine in, you know, these many remote poor villages where people have no health care at all, but they someone has a cell phone, they then have access to the world's entire store of medical information, and they just need a little bit of help connecting and filtering that access to be able to use it to improve their health. And the other point is coming back to the quality issue that Zach raised. One of my most interesting interviews was with Roy Perlis, who's a psychiatrist at Mass General Hospital, who's worked on AI and mental health issues for a very long time. And he pointed out, you know, we've been in such a devastating shortage of mental health providers for a long time, especially through the pandemic. He pointed out that, number one, there's that shortage. Number two, there's a real shortage of high quality therapists and other kinds of mental health providers. And you can imagine that you would train a large language model on an incredibly gifted therapist and then be able to spread that therapist to millions of people instead of subjecting them to some of the lower quality therapists that can actually sometimes do more harm than good. So there are just a, a multitude of avenues that you can imagine this being used for in ways that would benefit patients. There's a lot of questions about its accuracy, how risky at the moment it might be to rely on GPT for expertise. I mean, do we really want to outsource medical knowledge to a bot, you know, even in remote rural areas? No. And one of the conclusions that we make in the book is that, at least for now, there really must always be a human in the loop. Always, always, always. There has to be a healthcare professional that can check what... GPT-4 or other large language models tell people. But I would add that the work is progressing very quickly to start grappling with these hallucinations, which is the term that's used for these inaccuracies. For example, you can have one large language model check the work of the other large language model, and it will actually pick up the errors that the first one made and correct them. So I think that it's not unreasonable to expect that in the not too, too distant future, these models may well be accurate enough to be able to actually substitute for doctors. But the main thing that you hear right now is that, for example, you know, AI is not going to replace radiologists, but radiologists who use AI are going to replace radiologists who don't. So it's a partnerships and it's an augmentation of the healthcare staffers that we have now.
stay with me on hallucinations one more beat. I mean, why did these even happen right now? I mean, they're scary. Yes, yes, they are. And it turns out there's a narrower boundary between hallucination and creativity than we've ever realized. It makes some scary mistakes. But I would like to point out that we always have to ask ourselves in any human endeavor, and particularly healthcare, how does this compare to what we have today? If you cannot get to a primary care provider, tell me if you're not going to do this. You're going to go to your web browser and Google it. And you may or may not get good information. You may or may not get the truth. Or you may talk to your neighbor, and they may refer you to something that is extremely biased. And so I completely agree we have to keep the humans in the loop. We cannot trust this agent. But at the same time, I think we have to remember the real void of conversation and expertise that most patients live in. More of my conversation with Kerry Goldberg and Zach Kohani after this short break. So I want to take a step back here. Zach, you've been working at the intersection of AI and healthcare long before it was cool, right? <laughs> I think since the 80s. Uh, That's so, correct. <laughs> so what are some ways AI was used in healthcare before GPT-4? So those of us who are unfortunately old enough to have been around can tell you that it was actually cool in the 1980s, that there was actually an AI hype that justifiably went away when its promises not, did not occur, mostly because we didn't have the data and our tools were insufficient. But nonetheless, there were some things that were done that are used routinely. So for example, most ECGs or EKGs, which are done to look at your heart rhythm, are routinely read out and screened for abnormal rhythms. And most of the time, it's just a doctor quickly checking it to see if that electronic opinion is correct. And that's done routinely. Also, even before these large language models, it's really these large language models that's caused this quantum jump in performance. Even before these large language models came to be in genomics, having to look at anybody's genome, your genome, my genome, each have millions of variants but only one or two may actually contribute to, to disease. So when a patient comes with an unknown diagnosis and has their genome evaluated, trying to figure out which variant, which mutation is the cause of the things that make this patient suffer, turns out to be an AI problem that cannot be done without computational resources. So those are tools that are already being used. And the big difference between what we're experiencing now with the large language models and these prior AI tools is the generality of these tools. You can speak to the same GPT-4 about genetic disorders, literally about Talmudic interpretations of the Torah portion of the week, and the best place to buy your groceries for certain kinds of quality fruit. That's the big difference. Carrie, what about patients? What do you think is the biggest change or improvement you think patients will see 
with this AI revolution? I think one of the most hopeful things about it is that it could really make being a healthcare provider much better, which would be really good for patients because it could reduce the burnout and the attrition that has been such a problem since actually even before the pandemic, but has gotten, you know, onto steroids since the pandemic. And so if you have healthcare providers who can do much less paperwork, who can spend far less time filling out records and asking for prior authorization and writing down the notes from a patient's visit late until the night while they're at home and wish they could be with their family, you can retain a lot more healthcare providers and they're likelier to be happier. So that's number one. And I think number two is that it turns out that these large language models are incredibly good at translating sort of arcane, obscure medical information for us lay people. And so, for example, like we all get these explanations of benefits from our health insurance companies, and none of us understand at all what they say, right? But you can actually feed your explanation of benefits to GPT-4, and it will tell you in a few paragraphs what care you got and what that means. So there are examples like that, or even more importantly, if you're being discharged from the hospital and you have a bunch of different instructions, a large language model can help translate those instructions into language that's simple enough for you to be able to follow or translate it into Portuguese or Chinese or Russian or any other language that you might need. So there's a lot of sort of patient interaction that they can do that will be very helpful. And they're also surprisingly empathetic. Like if you've experienced them, they're quite pleasant. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I want to stay on the topic of paperwork. (laughs) I was struck by how much of the book delved into paperwork. Talk a little bit more about why paperwork is important. Studies done of doctors in their practice have shown that It's literally 50-50 between actually talking to patients and doing administrative work. And so that if you can reduce that administrative time, that's more time with the patient. There's another aspect, which unfortunately is crassly financial, which is that 30% of our enormous healthcare costs are due to administrative overhead. What is administrative overhead? Billing getting reimbursed, adjudication of claims, authorizations, and so on. If that can be automated, which it can, through these use of large language models, it's billions of dollars. There's a whole other question. Who's going to get those billions of dollars? I don't think it's going to be us in the end. But the financial stakes in reaping the benefits of productivity on that huge administrative overhead is substantial. Zach, you got a chance to play around with GPT-4. So are you using that software in your clinical work right now? And if so, how? I am. And what amazes me that there are people who are far less technically sophisticated than I am using it. I'll get to that, but I want to answer your question directly. So I'm involved in something called the Undiagnosed Disease Network, where we see patients who have been without a diagnosis and suffering for years, going from doctor to doctor without a diagnosis. And so I'm using it to see if we can actually diagnose some of those patients without having to do the heavy lift that we used to do of genome sequencing and to see if based on their presentation, can we actually diagnose them? And so far, we haven't completed the study, but it's looking 
interesting. But I have to say that the most important thing I think at this time is to start to understand its strengths and weaknesses and when it makes mistakes and when it hallucinates. And so I feel both compelled professionally as well as out of interest to work with it every day. And so, yes, this third member of the team, we used to have two humans interacting, patient and doctor, and now GPT has added to this mix. That triad is going to be throughout human interactions. Zach, when you use this software right now in your clinical work, I mean, you don't need a, an approval from the hospital or medical authorities. I mean, it feels like it doesn't need to be regulated somehow. So there's two things. One is under HIPAA, you cannot share your data and, or use store your data on, on platforms, on computer devices that have not met a certain HIPAA standard. So that means it is actually not right, not allowed to put patient data into ChatGPT, which is on the public servers going to OpenAI. There are some other implementations of GPT-4 that go through the Microsoft Azure cloud that is certified to keep that privacy. So none of the patient data remains or it's used. And that can be done. The reality is, by the way, I use it in that safe way, but the reality is the need is so great that doctors and patients already are using those public ways that are not regulated. Now, in terms of privacy and data security, but your deeper question is, is this regulated? Right now, it's no more regulated than me going to a textbook and saying, ah, I saw a patient with these findings. Crack open the textbook. In the end, I, the physician, am held responsible because the decision goes through me. And that's why in our book, we insist, trust but verify. We need to have a human being that is the final filter and determiner of whether any action is taken. Should there be regulation? I mean, what does that look like? I don't want to speak about regulation, but I do want to speak about measurement. We can actually measure how accurate it is. We can measure, we can have trials. There is a long tradition of prospective trials. We can say, this doctor with this AI compared to that doctor without an AI or randomized or this patient with AI without. And I apologize for the very self-serving advertisement I'm about to issue, but I'm about to become the editor-in-chief of something called NEJM AI, the AI journal spun off from NEJM. And what we're looking for specifically are prospective trials. How in the real world does this make a difference? And this has to be measured. And we know it's doable. For example, there was a very nice publication a couple of years ago about how Apple Watch could help detect cardiac arrhythmias in people wearing the Apple Watch and how well it did and how not so well it did. We need to know those things. Even before legislation, I think we have to know. Without measurement, we're flying blind. And I think some of the urgency comes from the fact that medicine tends to be very slow at integrating 
new practices and new devices and drugs into the practice of medicine. It's good that it's conservative, but it also means that there can be tremendously beneficial things that don't get to patients as quickly as they should. This shows tremendous potential to be beneficial, but it could take years and years to actually get to people. So I think the short answer to your question is, yes, it needs to be regulated so that it can be integrated into medicine. How to regulate it is a very big question. One last question. So where's the ceiling? I mean, will GPT-4 cure cancer? I mean, how good and how useful do you think this technology can get? And can we even envision that at this moment? I think that there are two levels to that question. One is just by making our current processes of research go faster, we can advance our way to the cures. In other words, if we can screen drugs, you know, use these models to figure out which ones are going to have side effects ahead of time, which ones have already been tried, find patients which are going to fit criteria to be recruited for those trials, then the whole process, all the way from animal studies to trials, can be accelerated. And that can mean life or death for the individuals who have the disease one or two years too early. It seems very likely at just following the current trajectory that it will be able to look instantly at these large databases and say, have you thought of this? Couldn't this drug be the right molecule for this? Oh, by the way, all these Alzheimer drugs are not going to work because of X, Y, and Z. I used to think it was not going to happen in my lifetime. Now, unless a car hits me, I think it's going to happen in my lifetime. It, it does sound like years is the time frame that people are talking about for that. But who knows? You know, we have a co-author on the book, Sebastian Bubeck, who's a very hardcore computer scientist. And he says, GPT-4 has basically randomized the future. Like there's this great big fog, even just a year away in terms of what the ceiling could be, as you asked, or what might be possible. And it actually reminds me, I covered the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I remember this sort of fog of war when we were feeling like, holy crap, I have no idea what happens even one week from now or one month from now. And that's kind of the feeling that I'm getting right now from the AI sphere I mean, you probably hear people saying, like, this could be the end of the world. This could be AIs that decide that humanity isn't good to have around, and so they destroy all of us. Or you have the hype on the other side saying, like, this could solve all the world's problems. And the answer is, geez, we just really do not know what to expect. But at least with medicine, we can say it seems like the potential benefits could be quite amazing and are worth pursuing with vigor. Carrie, Zach, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure, Shirley. Thank you. I'm so glad that Shirley the human was able to conduct conduct <laughs> this conversation. And maybe if it were a year from now, Shirley the bot will be conducting the conversation. <laughs> are, are we sure that it's Shirley the human? You're not sure. You're not Can't sure. Absolutely. Sure. You're not sure. <laughs> Say More is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Daniel Ackerman with the help from Scott Hellman and Abby Kanina. Our editor is Jim Dow. Our engineer is Ariana Martinez. Our music is from APM Music. 
If you like the show, please leave a review and follow us on Apple Podcasts. Find us online at globe.com slash opinion. I'm Shirley Leung. Thanks for listening.